Welcome. You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hi, I'm Mike Paul. Welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of Airs LA. This is episode 19, recorded February 27th, 2023. We have four articles for you today. We'll drill down into how ChatGPT may cut into Google's profits, review what's copyright protected and not when it comes to AI-generated comic artwork, learn how an early warning radar could prevent future pandemics, but first, our lead story. Our first article is by John Brodkin, published on February 24th, 2023. U.S. says Google routinely destroyed evidence and lied about use of auto-delete. In a filing, Google deleted chats for nearly four years, despite requirement to keep them. The U.S. government asked a federal court to sanction Google for allegedly using an auto-delete function on chats to destroy evidence needed in an antitrust lawsuit while falsely telling the government that it suspended its auto-deletion practices. The U.S. motion to sanction Google seeks a ruling that Google violated the rule against spoilation of evidence and, quote, an evidentiary hearing to assess the appropriate sanctions to remedy Google's spoilation, unquote. The U.S. also sought an order forcing Google to provide further information about custodians' history-off chat practices through written declarations and oral testimony in advance of the requested hearing. The motion was filed under seal on February 10th and unsealed yesterday. Quoting, Google consciously failed to preserve relevant evidence. The daily destruction of relevant evidence was inevitable when Google set a company-wide default to delete history-off chat messages every 24 hours and then elected to maintain that auto-delete setting for custodians subject to a litigation hold, U.S. Department of Justice antitrust lawyers wrote in a memorandum supporting the motion. Google had a duty to preserve employee chat messages starting in 2019 due to the litigation, the U.S. motion said. Google's destruction of written words prejudiced the United States by depriving it of a rich source of candid discussions between Google's executives, including likely trial witnesses, according to the U.S. filing in U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Google's auto-deletions continued until February 8th, the U.S. said. Amazingly, Google's daily spoilation continued until this week, the U.S. alleged. When the United States indicated that it would file this motion, following months of conferral, Google finally committed to permanently set to history on and thus preserve its employees' chat messages. A similar motion for sanctions was filed by 21 states that are also involved in the litigation against Google. The motions came in a lawsuit filed in October 2020, in which the U.S. and states allege that Google illegally maintains monopolies in search and search advertising through anti-competitive and exclusionary practices. Epic Games also seeks sanction for chat deletions. Google's history-off chats that are deleted every 24 hours previously came up in antitrust litigation over the Google Play Store. In that case, plaintiff Epic Games and the Utah Attorney General want the court to issue adverse inference jury instructions to remedy Google's spoilation of Google Chats. The motion is still pending. 
Google blames its systemic spoilation of relevant evidence on an enterprise default setting for Google Chats that is set to history off, but that is no excuse, Epic Games wrote. Any administrator of Google Chats, an application developed by Google, could have changed this default setting at any point for all custodians. Google has never claimed otherwise. But Google chose not to change the setting. It also chose to do nothing to ensure that its custodians changed this default setting on their own workstations. The U.S. government's new motion said, Google's refusal to suspend its auto-deletion policy earlier is especially notable in light of the sanctions motion filed in the EPIC proceedings. Even after the plaintiffs in that case confronted Google with spoilation concerns, Google still withheld its 24-hour auto-deletion policy from the United States and continued to destroy written communications in this case. On the new motion, Google provided ours a statement disputing the allegations. We strongly refute the DOJ's claims, Google said. Our teams have conscientiously worked for years to respond to inquiries and litigation. In fact, we have produced over 4 million documents in this case alone, and millions more to regulators around the world. U.S. Google falsely claimed to suspend auto-deletion. But the DOJ says Google repeatedly provided false information to the U.S. about its chat retention practices. Quoting two paragraphs, The federal rules of civil procedure required Google to suspend its auto-delete practices in mid-2019, when the company reasonably anticipated this litigation. Google did not. Instead, as described above, Google abdicated its burden to individual custodians to preserve potentially relevant chats. Few, if any, document custodians did so. That is, few custodians, if any, manually changed on a chat-by-chat basis the history default from off to on. This means that for nearly four years, Google systematically destroyed an entire category of written communications every 24 hours. Continuing, All this time, Google falsely told the United States that Google had put a legal hold in place that suspends auto-deletion. Indeed, during the United States investigation and the discovery phase of this litigation, Google repeatedly misrepresented its document preservation policies, which conveyed the false impression that the company was preserving all custodial chats. Not only did Google unequivocally assert during the investigation that its legal hold suspended auto-deletion, but Google continually failed to disclose, both to the United States and to the court, its 24-hour auto-deletion policy. Instead, at every turn, Google reaffirmed that it was preserving and searching all potentially relevant written communications. End quote. The dispute is similar to an earlier one in the same lawsuit that involved Google's alleged practice of routinely CCing lawyers on emails, even when no legal advice is being sought. In March 2022, the U.S. and states asked the federal court to sanction Google for misusing attorney-client privilege to hide emails from litigation. The U.S. also asked the court to compel disclosure of documents unjustifiably claimed by Google as attorney-client privileged, because the practice of adding lawyers to emails had no purpose except to mislead anyone who might seek the documents in investigation, discovery, or ensuing dispute. 
In May 2022, Judge Amit Mehta denied the motion to sanction Google and compel the disclosure of documents. Quoting, Google is ordered, however, to ensure that all of the silent attorney emails at issue in the motion have been re-reviewed to the same extent as the sample of 210 emails provided to the court for its in-camera review, the judge wrote. Our second article is by Ron Amadeo, published on February 22, 2023. ChatGPT-style search represents a 10x cost increase for Google and Microsoft. Google hints that an AI chatbot search engine will really cut into its profits. Is a ChatGPT-style search engine a good idea? The stock market certainly seems to think so, with it erasing $100 billion from Google's market value after the company's poor showing at its recent AI search event. Actually turning a chatbot into a viable business is going to be a challenge, though. Besides that fact, Google has had a chat search interface for seven years now, the Google Assistant, and the world's biggest advertising company has been unable to monetize it. And a new report from Reuters points out another monetary problem with generating a chat session for every search. That's going to cost a lot more to run compared to a traditional search engine. Today, Google Search works by building a huge index of the web, and when you search for something, those index entries get scanned and ranked and categorized with the most relevant entries showing up in your search results. Google's results page actually tells you how long all of this takes when you search for something, and it's usually less than a second. A ChatGPT-style search engine would involve firing up a huge neural network modeled on the human brain every time you run a search, generating a bunch of text, and probably also querying that big search index for factual information. The back-and-forth nature of ChatGPT also means you'll probably be interacting with it for a lot longer than a fraction of a second. All that extra processing is going to cost a lot more money. After speaking to Alphabet chairman John Hennessy, Alphabet is Google's parent company, and several analysts, Reuters writes that an exchange with AI known as a large language model likely costs 10 times more than a standard keyword search, and that it could represent several billion dollars of extra costs. Exactly how many billions of Google's $60 billion in yearly net income will be sucked up by a chatbot is up for debate. One estimate in the Reuters report is from Morgan Stanley, which tacks on a $6 billion yearly cost increase for Google if a chat GPT-like AI were to handle half the queries it receives with 50-word answers. Another estimate from consulting firm Semi-Analysis claims it would cost $3 billion. Google hinted at server time being a problem in its initial post on its BARD chatbot, saying it would start with a lightweight model version of Google's language model, and that this much smaller model requires significantly less computing power, enabling us to scale to more users, allowing for more feedback. Hearing that Google is being cautious about scale is interesting. Google is Google. It already operates at a scale that would dwarf most companies, and could handle whatever computing load you want to throw at it. Scale quote-unquote, is only a matter of what Google feels like paying for. 
the cost of search is definitely more of a problem for Google than Microsoft. Part of the reason Microsoft is so eager to rock the search engine boat is that most market share estimates put Bing at only about 3% of the wholesale search market, while Google is around 93%. Search is a primary business for Google in a way that Microsoft doesn't have to worry about, and with it needing to process 8.5 billion searches every day, Google's per-search costs can pile up very quickly. Alphabet's Hennessy told Reuters that Google is looking into driving down costs, calling it a couple-year problem at worst. Google has tackled problems like this in the past, like when it bought YouTube and was able to lower costs enough to turn it into a money-making machine. And it continues that today with innovations like building its own video transcoding chips. The company also builds custom server chips for machine learning, called tensor processing units, Still, with Google going on a cost-cutting bloodbath the last few months, suddenly looking ahead to its core consumer product having skyrocketing costs for a few years, quote-unquote, is not ideal. It's still not clear how much money anyone is going to make from chatbots that are supposed to give an answer directly. Google's and Amazon's voice assistants have both failed to generate a profit after years of this we'll-figure-it-out-later line of monetization thinking, and those are both just more limited chatbots. OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, charges money on a per-word-generated basis, which doesn't work for search engines. It's also riding a wave of hype and investor excitement that it can coast on for years. Another Reuters report says that Microsoft has already met with advertisers to detail its plan of inserting ads into responses generated by the Bing chatbot, but it's unclear how awkward that would be or if consumers will react when a chatbot suddenly kicks over into an ad break. For Google, it's again a question of comparing this new style of chat search engine versus the old one, and it's unclear if a chatbot interface would result in more or less ad revenue. You could imagine a future where instantly getting a good answer would result in less time on Google compared to having to dig through a list of 10 blue links, if that's true, then none of the money math on these new search engines looks good. Staying on the theme of AI, our third article is by Benji Edwards, published on February 23rd, 2023. AI-generated comic artwork loses U.S. copyright protection. Zarya images not protected by copyright words and arrangement remain protected. On Tuesday, the U.S. Copyright Office declared that images created using the AI-powered mid-journey image generator for the comic book Zarya of the Dawn should not have been granted copyright protection, and the image's copyright protection will be revoked. In a letter addressed to the attorney of author Chris Kashtanova, obtained by Ars Technica, the office cites incomplete information in the original copyright registration as the reason it plans to cancel the original registration and issue a new one, excluding protection for the AI-generated images. Instead, the new resignation will cover only the text of the work and the arrangement of the images and text. Originally, Kashtanova did not disclose that the images were created by an AI model. 
We conclude that Miss Kashtanova is the author of the work's text as well as the selection, coordination, and arrangement of the work's written and visual elements, reads the copyright letter. That authorship is protected by copyright. However, as discussed below, the images in the work that were generated by the Midjourney technology are not the product of human authorship. Last September, in a story that first appeared on Ars Technica, Kashtanova publicly announced that Zarya of the Dawn, which includes comic-style illustrations generated from prompts using the latest diffusion AI process, had been granted copyright registration. At the time, we considered it a precedent-setting case for registering artwork created by latent diffusion. However, as the letter explains, after the Copyright Office learned that the work included AI-generated images through Kashtanova's social media posts, it issued a notice to Kashtanova in October, stating that it intended to cancel the registration unless she provided additional information showing why the registration should not be canceled. Kashtanova's attorney responded to the letter in November with an argument that Kashtanova authored every aspect of the work, with Midjourney serving merely as an assistive tool. That argument wasn't good enough for the Copyright Office, which describes in detail why it believes AI-generated artwork should not be granted copyright protection. In a key excerpt provided below, the office emphasizes the image's machine-generated origins. Based on the record before it, the office concludes that the images generated by Midjourney contained within the work are not original works of authorship protected by copyright. See Compendium 3rd, Section 313.2, explaining that the office will not register works produced by a machine or mere mechanical process that operates randomly or automatically without any creative input or intervention from a human author. Though she claims to have guided the structure and content of each image, the process described in the Kashtanova letter makes it clear that it was Midjourney, not Kashtanova, that originated the traditional elements of authorship in the images. The letter provides additional analogies for understanding why the Copyright Office thinks Kashtanova is not the creator of the images, including the idea of hiring a human to create images, using descriptions and performing a text-based image search on the internet. The overall argument in the letter may serve as an important legal precedent for future attempts to copyright AI-generated images. In an Instagram post, Kashtanova reacted to the letter by framing it as an overall win for AI-augmented artists. She says the ruling is great news in the sense that it protects the comic book's story and the image arrangement, which covers a lot of uses for people in the AI art community. But on the issue of losing copyright protection for the individual images, Kashtanova says she is not giving up the fight. Quoting, I was disappointed in one aspect of the decision. The Copyright Office didn't agree to recognize my copyright of the individual images. I think that they didn't understand some of the technology, so it led to a wrong decision. It is fundamental to understand that the output of a generative AI model depends directly on the creative input of the artist, and it is not random. My lawyers are looking at our options to further explain to the Copyright Office how individual images produced by Midjourney are a direct expression of my creativity and therefore copyrightable. Despite precedents for earlier algorithmically generated artwork receiving copyright protection, 
This ruling means that AI-generated imagery without human-authored elements cannot currently be copyrighted in the United States. The Copyright Office's ruling on the matter will likely hold until it's challenged in court, revised by law, or re-examined in the future. It's possible that the ruling may eventually be reconsidered as the result of a cultural shift in how society perceives AI-generated art, one that may allow for a new interpretation by different members of the U.S. Copyright Office in the decade ahead. For now, AI-powered artwork is still a novel and poorly understood technology, but it may eventually become the standard way visual arts emerge. Not allowing for copyright protection would potentially preclude its use by large and powerful media conglomerates in the future. So the story of AI and copyrights is not over yet. Our fourth article is by Amos Zieber, originally published in Undark Magazine and republished to ours on February 26, 2023. How an early warning radar could prevent future pandemics. A tool called metagenomic sequencing can help detect unknown pathogens. On December 18, 2019, Wuhan Central Hospital admitted a patient with symptoms common for the winter flu season a 65-year-old man with fever and pneumonia. A. Fenn, director of the emergency department, oversaw a typical treatment plan, including antibiotics and anti-influenza drugs. Six days later, the patient was still sick, and A. was puzzled, according to news reports and a detailed reconstruction of this period by evolutionary biologist Michael Warby. The respiratory department decided to try to identify the guilty pathogen by reading its genetic code, a process called sequencing. They rinsed part of the patient's lungs with saline, collected the liquid, and sent the sample to a biotech company. On December 27th, the hospital got the results. The man had contracted a new coronavirus closely related to the one that caused the SARS outbreak that began 17 years before. The original SARS virus was sequenced five months after the first cases were recorded. This type of traditional sequencing reads the full genetic code, or genome, of just one organism at a time, which first needs to be carefully isolated from a sample. The researchers hired by Wuhan Central Hospital were able to map the new virus so quickly using a more demanding technique called metagenomic sequencing, which reads the genomes of every organism in a sample at once without such time-intensive preparation. If the traditional approach is like locating a single book on a shelf and copying it, metagenomic sequencing is like grabbing all the books off the shelf and scanning them all at once. This ability to quickly read a range of genomes has proven useful in fields from ecology to cancer treatment. And the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed some researchers to use metagenomics to try to spot new diseases and respond to them earlier, before they become pandemics, and potentially before they even infect people. Some of these experts say that the early spread of COVID-19 in the United States could have been curbed more quickly if the medical community had applied this technology. If metagenomic sequencing was done more routinely, maybe we would have known what it was when there were only 20 infections, 
in the U.S., said Joe DeRisi, a professor of biochemistry and biophysics at the University of California, San Francisco, and president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, a nonprofit research center. But while the raw power of metagenomics is clear, there are challenges to using it to squelch potential pandemics. The technique requires intensive computer processing, making it costlier than some others, and calls for greater expertise to interpret the results. Using the copious data metagenomics produce to guide treatment also raises quandaries about medical decision-making when, for instance, it's not clear whether a certain pathogen is causing a certain illness. Still, advocates say the costs are worth it. Metagenomics plays a critical role in pandemic preparedness by looking for the things we don't know what to look for, said Jessica Manning, an infectious disease researcher at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. The rise of metagenomics over the past couple of decades is due in part to advances in genome sequencing. To read the contents of the genome, researchers first isolate the molecules that store genetic information, DNA and RNA, which are long chains of nucleotides, the letters of the genetic library. Then they cut the long molecules into shorter chunks and read the order of letters in each chunk. Finally, they combine the shorter reads to reconstruct the full genome. Over the past 40 years, innovation, especially automation, dramatically improved every part of this process. The Human Genome Project, launched in 1990, took more than a decade of work coordinated between 20 research groups and cost around a billion dollars. Today, a human genome can be sequenced more accurately, for less than one millionth of the cost, by one scientist in one day. As the technology got better, researchers started trying to sequence many organisms at once, a complex task that requires figuring out how millions of short reads fit together to make any number of genomes. Eventually, researchers wrote sophisticated software that can sort out the sequences using networks of powerful computers. It's not uncommon to spin up hundreds to thousands of CPUs to do this job, said Derisi, who created a free online software package called Chan Zuckerberg ID that solves these thorny sequencing puzzles on computers in California, then sends the results out to users in far-flung locations. Metagenomic sequencing quickly became indispensable in some fields of research, particularly where researchers study the mix of microorganisms in an environment. The number of sequenced viruses is exploding, said Edward Holmes, a pathogen expert at the University of Sydney. In the old days, you cultured viruses and sequenced them one at a time. No more. Now it's just metagenomics. In medicine, metagenomics can help explain illnesses that aren't picked up by more routine tests like those of flu or strep. That was how A. Fen and her colleagues at Wuhan Central Hospital happened upon some of the first evidence of the novel coronavirus. But researchers are also using metagenomics more intentionally to try to detect outbreaks early on, perhaps preventing another pandemic. One obvious potential risk comes from coronaviruses, which have already caused two major new diseases in humans this century. Using metagenomics as a tool to find out how the viruses move between animals in Asia could give researchers early warning about the development of new human pathogens. 
For instance, in 2021, researchers in Cambodia metagenomically sequenced samples from local bats and found two of the closest known relatives of SARS-CoV-2. In 2019, a group in China using the same approach discovered that pangolins carry similar viruses and could be a vector for passing them to humans. And Zheng Li Shi, who found the likely birthplace of SARS and led the Wuhan Institute of Virology's announcement of SARS-CoV-2, has used metagenomics to chart viruses in bats. Researchers are also using metagenomics to watch for pathogens in other parts of the world. Kara Brook, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Chicago, runs such a project in Madagascar, which she said is the kind of place where new diseases are likely to emerge, a tropical country with limited health care that's home to bats and carry human pathogens like the Ebola virus. What's more, people in Madagascar eat some of the larger bats, providing a ready opportunity for viruses to break out. In November 2022, Brooke headed out into the forest in Madagascar with four graduate students to gather samples from three species of bat. The largest, Pteropus rufus, can have a wingspan of around three feet and makes a sizable meal. The pectoral muscle mass is impressive, said Brooke. It's like a steak. Brooke recently caught, in good health, a bat that her team had sampled and tagged back in 2013. Bats can live up to 40 years, far longer than other mammals of similar size. It's thought that, as the only flying mammals, bats have developed unique features in their immune systems that explain both their longevity and why they carry so many viruses. That, in turn, may be why bats are the sources of so many human diseases. In 2022, Brooke and her colleagues reported the sequences of two new coronaviruses in the journal Frontiers in Public Health. According to the paper, the viruses don't seem to be a threat to people, but knowing more about their family tree could help researchers better understand how coronaviruses evolve into pathogenic varieties. Brooke is also sequencing samples from people in Madagascar who have unexplained fevers to see if she can pick up on new pathogens that have already crossed over from another animal. Other groups are similarly looking for such crossovers. In 2018, for example, a group of researchers set up a sentinel program at three hospitals in China using metagenomic sequencing to test people who had fevers and recent exposure to animals. Over the next three years, they found 35 people who were sick with a previously unknown virus, which they described in the New England Journal of Medicine in August 2022. The researchers also tested animals near the patients' homes and found the virus in goats, dogs, mice, one unlucky vole, and most often in shrews, which the researchers suspect are its natural reservoirs. None of the patients died, and the researchers said the virus doesn't likely spread between people. But if the virus evolves to become more dangerous, doctors may now be prepared for it. Many researchers told Undark that metagenomics should play a larger role in watching for outbreaks. Alexander Greeniger, a microbiologist at the University of Washington, said the most obvious way to use the technique is by testing people who die without explanation. This is the ultimate in, well, it doesn't change patient management, but it's important for the diagnostic enterprise to know what it's missing, said Grininger. 
Aren't we chiefly concerned about mortality for these new viral pandemics, he asked. It really is the canary in the coal mine. But there are barriers to everyday use. A key organizational problem in American healthcare is that insurers generally pay for traditional tests that cover one disease, Greninger said, rather than tests that look for many, like metagenomic sequencing. Allowing for such tests could make a big difference. In early February 2020, three weeks before doctors knew COVID-19 was spreading in the U.S., a woman in the Bay Area with flu-like symptoms suddenly died. Her death baffled the local coroner and the woman's family, who wondered if she had the novel coronavirus. But since she had not traveled to China recently, she was not tested until two months later, when she was identified as the first American to succumb to the disease. In the absence of widespread testing, DeRisi, based nearby in San Francisco, said his lab could have quickly recognized that she had COVID-19 if the healthcare system connected patients to metagenomics. The CZ Biohub has trained hundreds of researchers, including Brooke, to use DeRisi's metagenomics tool to identify pathogens around the world. Bottom line, metagenomics is a great way to build an early warning radar, he said. In the future, he said, doctors and scientists may routinely use the technology to watch for both new and old diseases. The next generation of metagenomic sequencing, along with advances in related technologies, he added, will be used to replace many of the main diagnostic systems we have for infectious diseases. Metagenomics has trade-offs. One issue is the price. Sequencing costs more than rapid tests for common infections, especially considering that most metagenomic tests of people find a relatively small number of common pathogens, which isn't very valuable, said Grininger. In China, the cost of sequencing is lower, mostly because companies there sequence so many samples, giving them significant economy of scale. Researchers have also pointed out that many metagenomic successes are case reports detecting new or unexpected pathogens in smaller numbers of people. It's been harder to show how the tool should be applied systematically across a health system, under which circumstances to test a patient, for instance, and then how to act on complicated results. Greninger said the field has fanboys who promote metagenomics as flashy big data tech while downplaying the complexities. Academics are in the business of selling the future, he said. Beyond those financial and medical hurdles, politics might present a higher one. Even if the tool were widespread, governments have to share the information in order for it to be useful. The debate over the origins of COVID has gotten so toxic, people are less likely to collaborate now, said Holmes. If you had a novel infection in Russia, do you think we'll ever hear about it? If there's a novel infection in China, do I think the Chinese government will allow studies? No way. We're in a worse situation now than we were before the pandemic. Derisi said the uncoordinated nature of the U.S. health system also stymies the kind of coordinated response needed to quickly stop outbreaks. Even when it was used to quickly identify SARS-CoV-2, metagenomics smacked into political reality. At Wuhan Central Hospital in 2019, after A. Fen heard that her patient was carrying a new coronavirus, she drew a red circle around the relevant text in a written report, took a photo of the document, 
and sent it to a group chat with other doctors in Wuhan. She soon got a severe rebuke from the hospital disciplinary committee for, quote, spreading rumors, unquote, and, quote, harming stability, unquote. Chinese officials were gagging doctors in Wuhan using their power to stop the spread of coronavirus. A had no way of knowing how costly that delay would be. Had I known that would happen today, she told the Chinese magazine People, I would not have cared about all the reprimands and criticisms and would have spoken up everywhere. And that brings us to the end of this week's articles. To learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at facebook.com slash A-I-R-S-L-A. If you like what's there, please hit the like button. Music provided by Hot Fire. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening.